one of the greatest areas of satanic attack will be about finances. I don't want to get into it today, but trust me, you want to be able to learn about walking in victory financially, okay? And there's some things God has taught me, and I just want to tell you that it changed my life, and it's very evident that God has, because there was a time in my life when I really struggled in that area. And you know, how many knows that we can sometimes have great faith in one area, but not necessarily learn how to walk in faith in another? Because you know, sometimes people have great faith for someone else's healing, but they themselves don't have great faith for their own. And they'll have great faith when it comes to one thing, but not necessarily another. And so the Lord's got to help us learn his word, and, and faith comes by hearing the word. So once you hear a subject matter like that, and you hear the scriptures, and you hear the will of the Lord, then your faith begins to arise. You begin to learn what the word of God says, and then you start seeing results. And when you start seeing results, your faith just keeps skyrocketing. So that's what I'm going to be dealing with. Let me say this, too, just as a prelude. There's, there's two things I want to talk about. First is that a lot of times there's things in our lives that we just don't see. And I mean, it's, and I'm talking about sin or something, just an area. Sometimes people have an unforgiveness that they don't realize is there. Sometimes somebody will have sin in their life, and they don't really realize that it's there because it's something that's been such a habit for so long. Or it's something maybe they were raised that way. You hear what I'm saying? And when people don't even realize that they're doing stuff sometimes. But I've seen, I'll give some examples. This is just the intro here. But I've seen sometimes where people in the very area where they have some sin in their life or some struggle, they really don't even see that it's there. But in that area, other things start manifesting. For example... There was a friend of mine that a man came to him. He's a preacher. A man came to him that had prostate cancer and wanted prayer. And while they were praying, my pastor friend had a word of knowledge and asked him if he was struggling with some sin in his life sexually. And the guy admitted, he said, yeah, he was dealing you know, with pornography and what goes along with that. And so my pastor friend prayed with him first to get that under the blood and deal with the sin. Once he dealt with the sin... He prayed about it, and did you know that cancer completely disappeared? There was a woman, I heard her give her testimony that she had developed breast cancer, and she was in church, and she was worshiping the Lord. And the Lord spoke to her while during the worship time and said, you have unforgiveness towards so-and-so. She didn't even realize that she did. She didn't even realize that at all. That thought was not even in her mind. And all of a sudden, she got to thinking about it, and she was like, you know, I do. And she prayed about it. And you know when she went back to the doctor, that lump was gone. These are just some stories I'm giving you as an example. I think sometimes people have things in their lives they don't see, but it's manifesting itself in the physical. Like, for example, somebody could have uh, issues with their chest, but they may also use that area to gossip. Do you hear what I'm saying? That from their lungs that, that they're speaking out things that have to do with gossip. Or it could be grumbling and complaining about things in life. And they have issues in their, maybe their, their teeth, gums, or they have issues in their chest. They have health problems because of sin in their life that they're not dealing with. And any time you know something is wrong and you keep doing it, it's a sin. Amen? So sometimes God's got to speak to you why there's stubborn issues in your life because you may not see everything that God's trying to deal with. I think sometimes generational patterns, I think the way people were raised, 
If they were raised around negative people, they tend to be negative. If they were raised around certain patterns, it seems to show up in their life. And so they're going to have to let the Holy Spirit help them. Because, you know, if somebody grew up in a situation where the family was dysfunctional, out of order, where maybe the husband wasn't leading or, or the wife was, was trying to run everything, or, or maybe it was just dysfunctional, there was fighting all the time, then these issues begin to show up in their own life like patterns. And these patterns can keep cycling down generationally until somebody discerns it and gets it dealt with. All right, so this is another thing I want to get into. I want to talk tonight mainly about temptation, deception, accusation. Satan attacks people in these three primary ways. That is temptation, deception, and accusation. Temptation, once you learn how to get strong in the Lord and you start growing up spiritually, temptation is really not that powerful of an attack. Deception can be a pretty powerful attack. But accusation is definitely a very powerful form. And you see these patterns. I'm going to show you some stuff because I want you to learn how to walk in victory over this. Let's look at Adam and Eve in the garden. Just read along with me. Now the serpent was more crafty. And crafty means to find ways to get around the rules. You guys ever known people that are always trying to find ways around the rules? That he was more crafty than any other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit of the tree in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. So there's the first thing right there. Eve did not know the word of God. And please hear me tonight. Please listen and get this. Eve did not know the word of the Lord. She did not know that God had said a certain thing. Whenever she quoted the quote, think about this. The word of God during that time was don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day you eat of it, you'll die. That was Adam and Eve's Bible. That was the word of God that they had in their time. And Eve managed to misquote the only scripture she had to memorize. She didn't know the word of God for herself. You hear what I'm saying? And when Satan came to her and he was about to try to deceive her because she did not know the word of God, because God didn't say anything about not touching it, because she didn't know the word of God for herself, she got deceived. Are you hearing me? For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good from evil. When the woman, now look at this, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her who ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open. They realized they were naked, and you know the story. But I'm going to give you some things here. First off, Adam was following her lead instead of her following Adam's lead. And so you automatically are seeing the Jezebel Ahab pattern right there. But look at what Eve said. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, number one, it was pleasing to the eye, number two, and it was desirable for gaining wisdom, number three. Those are the three things where Satan attacked her life and he prevailed. I want you to go with me to Luke 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. Now listen, if you're going to deal with the enemy, you've got to be full of the Spirit. Okay, God has got to get you full of the Spirit of God. 
Jesus, being full of the Spirit of God, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of those days he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And then the devil led him to a high place and showed him the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said, I will give you authority and splendor, for it's been given to me, and I can give it to whoever I want. If you worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God only and serve him only. And the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he said, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an inopportune, or I'm sorry, until an opportune time. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Let me just stop there. Everything that Eve faced in the garden, Jesus faced it. And this leads me to 1 John 2.16 which says, For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. See, the lust of the eyes, this is a big area where Satan attacks people is with your eyes, what you're looking at. You know, Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom, and next thing you know, he was in there, and his whole family was getting messed with. You know, his family got so messed up while he was in Sodom, even though he was a good man, a righteous man, he lost his wife, and then his daughters ended up getting into some incestual uh, sexual relationships. See, what you look at begins to draw you deeper into it. You've got to be careful what you're looking at. Where, where Eve, she looked at the fruit, and she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. Remember, Satan showed Jesus the kingdoms of the world and tried to trap Jesus with the lust of his eyes. And he was telling Jesus, look at all of this. You can have all of this. It's mine. I'll give it to you if, if you'll just worship me. And he was trying to suck Jesus into a deception by using his eyes. You see how Satan will use, he'll use his voice and he'll use what you're looking at. And he tries to use different things to tempt you and to deceive you. So be careful to guard the gateway of your eyes to keep bouncing eyes and don't start staring at things you're not supposed to be looking at. When things are coming across the television, turn it. If things are coming across the internet, get out of there. But don't start gazing your eyes on things you shouldn't be looking at because I'm telling you, Jesus said if your eye is dark, your whole body's dark. And you, if you're not careful, your eyes can pull you down quicker than almost anything. That was really the first thing Satan did was he basically showed her the fruit and got her attention on the fruit. And he knew, why didn't Satan go to Adam? Because Adam knew the word of the Lord, and he was kind of the, the one that was more spiritually strong. He went to Eve, and right there you can see that she did, really didn't know the word of God for herself. It's funny because I can just see that Adam walked with God and God gave him that word and then he conveyed it to Eve and probably where she got that phrase, you must not touch it, was from Adam who said, look, God said don't eat the fruit of that tree, but don't even touch it, just stay away from it. It's a bad idea. Okay, that's probably where she got that from, was from Adam. But it wasn't the word of the Lord. Now there's a subtle message in that. 
in that you've got to be careful to know the Word of God for yourself because all the time I'm seeing people that don't know the Word. And if you don't know what the Bible says, you're a prime candidate for deception. All the time, and you guys know that ever do street evangelism, I did street evangelism for years talking to people, and all the time, all the time, they're misquoting the Bible. I hear it all the time out there. They're, they're saying, oh, well, the Bible says this. I know like, it don't. You know, and, and they'll say that to, 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 you know, go with their argument against God. Or they'll quote it out of context. Let me show you a couple other things. The lust of the flesh. Now, how many knows when, whenever Adam and Eve ate of the tree, sin entered their body, and we are all descendants of Adam and Eve. You know why Jesus' body was not sinful and why jesus didn't have a sinful nature was because he was not of an he was not of adam's line he was conceived by the holy spirit so jesus didn't have a sinful nature like me and you but we're all descendants of adam and we have a sinful nature and so your whole life you know people get off you know frustrated sometimes about their spiritual walk but i assure you that your whole life you may not necessarily face a devil every day but you will face your flesh every day and your flesh that area of you your body where the sinful nature is craves things that it shouldn't be craving because of the sinful nature in you and your spirit man craves the things of God and so here you are walking through life with part of you craving sin and part of you craving God and that's why the Bible teaches us that you've got to die to your flesh and walk in the Spirit. And that's why Jesus said to make sure and pray, have a strong prayer life, because he said your spirit's willing, but your flesh is weak. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So here's some things up to this point. Guard your eyes. Be careful what is coming in your eyes. Be careful because I'm going to tell you, if you start letting it slide, it's a slippery creek bank that pretty soon you let this slide and you get desensitized and you're off into this and pretty soon you're pretty far gone. So Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. I'm going to tell you, the devil didn't come to Eve right after she ate. He came to her when she was hungry just like he came to Jesus when he was hungry, even though it doesn't say that in the Bible. I know he did. He went up to Eve probably around the time she was going to eat every day. He probably studied her. And he saw that she eats around this time every day, so he came to her when she was hungry, and he said, doesn't this look good? See, that's the lust of the flesh. And Satan waited till a time when Jesus was starving and came to him and said, if you're the Son of God, just turn these stones to bread. But see, God the Father had already told Jesus, don't eat for 40 days. And so Jesus would have been in rebellion to God by breaking his fast. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Hopefully this will help you understand the story a little better. Jesus was in, he would have been in rebellion to God. He would have broke fast if he would have turned those stones to bread, which he could have done. And Satan was trying to use the lust of the flesh to pull him down. But if you don't allow the lust of the flesh to pull you in and you rise above that, Satan's going to lose a major foothold in people's lives whenever they learn to die to the flesh and walk in the Spirit. 
Another thing is the pride of life. The pride of life, listen, Satan also accused God to Eve because Satan told Eve, he said basically this, he said, God is trying to withhold something good from you because he knows that when you eat this, you're going to be like him. Knowing good from evil, you're going to become like God yourself. They were already made in the image of God. Hello. So what were they after? See, Satan started accusing God, basically saying, he's withholding good things from you. He's not everything he says he is. You know, here he is trying to keep something from you that that would make you more like him. So in this, you see the temptation to do what they know they're not supposed to do, the deception of the enemy tricking Eve, but you also see the accuser of the brethren accusing God and trying to make God look like something he's not, like God was trying to keep them from something good. How many knows God was not trying to keep them from something good? He was trying to protect them from something bad. But Eve saw that the food, this is the pride of life, she saw that the food was desirable for gaining wisdom, the Bible says. And you remember whenever Satan took Jesus up on the temple and he said, just jump off here because the Bible says that God will give his angels charge over you. But you always got to be careful about pride because pride makes you start being presumptuous. Presumptuous is when God is not speaking, but you're still going to do something anyway and think that he's got your back. God was not telling Jesus to jump off the building. That would have just been a prideful, presumptuous act for Jesus to do. Does that make sense? It would have been prideful. And Jesus said not to put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to test him. I'm not going to be prideful. I'm not going to be presumptuous. Because Jesus said, I do what I see my father doing, and I speak what I hear him speaking, and he's not speaking this. You are, and I'm not going to do it. So Jesus overcame in every area where Eve fell. Are you guys seeing this in a little bit different light? Satan will try to come at you with the lust of the eyes, and he'll try to come at you with the lust of the flesh, things that are appealing to your flesh, and the pride of life. And pride meaning this, that many times he will start trying to accuse God to you and make God seem like he's trying to withhold something good from you. God is not withholding anything good from you. He's trying to protect you. You know, when you see little kids, you try to tell them, you know, don't touch that. But yet, they think that you're trying to withhold something good. And next thing you know, they're hurt. And you're having to bandage them up, you know. And that's exactly how God is. He's trying to tell people, if you do that, that is sin. And it'll, it, Satan will still kill and destroy if you do that, if you go down that path. But see, once you get into this sin business, it opens the door for so much more. Just like, for example, when I was talking about the prostate cancer, when the guy got into pornography and what goes along with pornography, it opened the door then for a spirit of death to come in to that part of his body and start causing cancer there. And as soon as he repented, that preacher was able to get that out of his life, but he opened the door. And let me try to paint a picture about how God is to you. A lot of people really don't know the Lord the way he really is. 
Jesus will never tolerate your sin and he'll never tolerate my sin. He won't. He won't wink at it. He won't act like it's okay. He'll never tolerate it. He'll never make you feel good about it. He'll never make you feel comfortable in sin. He will always convict you and deal with you, and he'll never sweep it under a rug, and he'll never ignore it. But he also will help you overcome it. And if somebody's struggling, he's not going to condone it, but he'll help them. And he'll come in there, and he'll help you. He'll teach you. Somebody falls down, they're bumped up, he'll pick them up, dust them off, and he'll say, here's where you missed it. Let me show you. And he'll say, if you'll do, do this, this, and this, and quit doing this, you'll get victory next time. And then he'll say, let's try this again. And he'll pick you up, he'll dust you off, he'll teach you, and he'll help you. And he's there helping you, cheering you on from glory to glory. That's Jesus. He's helping you. And he's the best friend you got. And let me tell you, he's got your back, and he's also your greatest cheerleader you got in life, too. He's there, he's cheering you on, and, and he's for you. But he'll never condone things. And see, I think a lot of people think of Jesus and they think that he's real tolerant towards sin. He's not tolerant towards sin, but he will help you overcome it. He'll help you get victory. All right, so overcoming, John 16, 33. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. For in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So the three main areas that you and I are going to have to start overcoming is going to be temptation, deception, and the accuser of the brethren. You guys ready to learn about this? Because I don't know about you, but I want to know how to overcome temptation. I want to make sure I'm not going to be deceived. And I don't want to get slammed by the accuser of the brethren. So I'm going to give you some things. And it's interesting, the timing, because next week is Easter. And I'm really going to get into the cross tonight. All right, so number one, temptation. How do we overcome temptation? The first thing is don't have any idols in your life. You know why a lot of people fall into temptation? Because they refuse to surrender something. The Lord tells them that relationship has got to go. That music CD needs to go. You need to quit watching this. You need to change this. And the person goes, no, I don't really want to. You know, I, I like that. And, I, and, they, and they hold on to it. That's an idol that's in their heart. And that very area, they keep falling. And they keep falling. And every time the devil shows up, they keep falling. And they're struggling. And there's people that go into the ministry and they have idols in their heart they haven't dealt with. And it may have to do with money. It may have to do uh, with sex. Or it may have to do with something else and they haven't dealt with it. And then pretty soon you hear about them falling. You hear what I'm saying? And they really have a call in their life, but yet they didn't deal with the idol. So number one is ask the Lord and let him pull out every idol. You cannot have idols of, of boyfriends, girlfriends, husband, wife. I need this. I got to Listen, something in your life that you feel like, I've got to have this. That's an idol. That's an idol. Let's just say it like it is. And, and if God ever asks you to give up something and you're like, I just cannot give that up, that's an idol. And you know what? A lot of people really struggle with fear in their life because it's, a, it's an unhealthy attachment to an idol, and that unhealthy attachment to that idol has created a fear in them and a fear of losing that idol. Yeah. And therefore, they get pulled down. 
And it could be like, for example, a relationship. And, you know, some people struggle with jealousy because they live in so much fear and a relationship has become an idol and they live in fear of losing that idol. So they're very protective and jealous. But once these idols have been rooted out of your heart, then what is the devil really going to tempt somebody with? You see what I'm saying? Because anything, if Jesus has truly got all of your heart, whatever Satan tries to tempt you with, it's like automatic default. You fall back on the fact that I love the Lord and I don't want to do that and compromise the relationship. You see what I'm saying? Also dying to the flesh. This is a daily battle. Paul said, I die daily. Listen, you think, some of you may think, well, one day I'll die to the flesh and that'll just be it. No, it's not like that. You're going to face it every day, okay? So what you got to do is get up in the morning time and spend time in prayer. And what happens is as you get in prayer, you find that your sinful nature, your flesh is dying and your, your spiritual man is rising in power. And then you go out throughout your day, you're walking in the spirit and you're overcoming the flesh. But you've, the only way that you're going to die to the flesh daily is to pray. I've been at this thing long enough to know that. Okay, There's not another way. There's not some magic formula. And let me tell you that with God, the easy way is almost always the wrong way. Are you hearing me? With God, the easy way is always the wrong way. So if something is quick and easy, you need to stop and say, wait a second, I'm on the devil's path, something's off, and you need to reroute yourself. Because with the Lord, listen, the way the Lord has it set up is, it seems like the longer and the more difficult path is always God. So when you look at the mountain and you see the shortcut, that's the devil. When you look at the mountain and you see the long, difficult, go through this thing, blast it, that's God. And that's what Satan does many times. Why in the world would he say to Adam and Eve, you can be like God eating this fruit? That's stupid. They were made in the image of God. And whenever Satan came to Jesus and said, I'll give you all these kingdoms, Jesus was going to take all these kingdoms anyway. But you know what Satan was doing? He was trying to offer him a shortcut. He was trying to say, hey, 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 you don't have to go through all of that cross business. If you'll just worship me, I'll just give it to you right now. He was trying to give him a shortcut. If Jesus had fell for that, which we know he wouldn't, he would have gotten pulled right into Satan's trap like Eve did. But because Jesus said, no, no, I'm going to go the long way. I'm going to go the difficult way. I'm going to go through the cross. I'm not going to take a shortcut. I'm going to go through the cross, the other side. Jesus is now the King of kings and Lord of lords, seated at the right hand of the Father. Amen? So we've got to have a strong prayer life to overcome temptation. There's not a shortcut. Learn how to pray. And start praying because there's not a shortcut. There's no easy way. All right, number two, deception. The way that you're going to overcome deception is you're going to have to know the Bible for yourself. You're going to have to get in there and study it out and learn it for yourself. And it's not that hard to do. 
once you get the foundation laid. But you're going to have to study it. And today in this society with computer software, there is no excuse why we can't study the Word and know it. It's just too easy and too available. But if you'll stay in the Word, here's the two things I'm going to give you. Number one, get into the Word and learn it. Number two, you're going to have to get to know the Holy Spirit. Some of you know God the Father, and some of you know, obviously you know Jesus as a Christian. But do you know the Holy Spirit? Do you have a relationship with Him? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who is actually revealing Jesus to you. He's the one that's teaching you. He's the one that's teaching you the Bible. He's the one that's empowering you to overcome sin. He's the one that's helping you along this journey. I say this many times to make the point, but where's God the Father right now? He's in heaven. Where's Jesus right now? At the right hand of the Father. So who is it here with us now, living in us, who's with us? The Holy Spirit. We've got to get to know Him because once you know the Holy Spirit, you know His presence, you know His voice, you know His leading, and you're familiar with Him. When a counterfeit shows up, you know it. There's a counterfeit spirit, and you know that's not the Holy Spirit. I know His voice, that's not His voice. I know His presence, that's not His presence. You hear what I'm saying? I remember one time I was hearing a man... You guys heard this. I don't know if you remember it. But he went to a Rodney Howard Brown meeting back in the 90s. It was a pastor, and he was sharing. Remember, I showed this to you guys. He was sharing about how God changed his life. But one of the things he said was this. He said that he used to have a miraculous ministry, and he had kind of gotten away from all of that. But he said that while he was in Rodney's meeting, the Spirit of God came upon him, and God touched him. And here's what he said. He said, I know the presence of the Lord. He said, I know the Holy Spirit. And he said, when the Holy Spirit touched me, he said, I know I, that this is God. I have no doubt this is God. And therefore, he entered in. Do you see what I'm saying? But there's people, even Pentecostal people, and I'll never understand this. They'll go to revival and sit there with their arms folded saying, this isn't of God. It's like, what planet are you on, man? Where are you from? It's like, do you have the same Holy Spirit that we all do? Why don't you recognize his presence? But what it is is this. They Listen, they have felt the presence and heard the voice of a religious spirit for so long, and they thought that was the Holy Spirit, that whenever they got in the presence of the Holy Spirit, they said, that's the counterfeit. That's the problem. You've got to get to know the real Holy Spirit, not a counterfeit. Satan is called in Revelation 12.10, he's called the accuser of the brethren. If you can get this tonight, your life will be radically different. Number one, overcome temptation. Get the idols out, learn how to pray. Number two, overcome deception by getting in the word, knowing the word, knowing the Holy Spirit. But number three, the accuser. I want you to be aware of the way Satan operates against you. He comes as a tempter. He comes as a master deceiver, and he comes as an accuser. He accuses God to you. Just like he did Adam and Eve, and just like he tried to do with Jesus, he tries to accuse God to you. And the way that Satan will accuse God is he will try to tell you that God is withholding something good from you, or that God is not who he says he is. And he'll start trying to get your mind to entertain negative thoughts about God. 
and don't entertain them. There's nothing evil or wrong that is in God anywhere. Satan is a liar, and when he comes like that, he's coming as a liar. And not only that, but listen, Satan will also accuse other people to your mind. All of a sudden, you're irritated with somebody. You have a problem with a person. This thought comes into your mind, well, so-and-so, look at the way they're looking at me. Look at the way they're acting. Or they'll be leaning over talking to somebody else, and they'll assume, well, they're talking about me. And it's the accuser of the brethren putting thoughts in someone's mind against their brother and sister in Christ. And then if that works, the enemy will start doing it to them, and pretty soon a fight breaks out. And you, you try to figure it out. You try to figure out afterward, pulling back the layers, what caused the fight. They come to find out it's something stupid. Something that was so ridiculous. Well, I thought that they were talking about me. Well, you know, I thought that this, and I, and, and I thought that they gave me a dirty look, and they were mad at me. And, you know, and let me tell you, this is rampant in churches. Is it okay that I just preach this for a moment? Is this okay? In churches, people act many times so immature that on a secular workplace, an employer would never put up with it and would fire them. They act so immature that a school teacher would send them to the principal's office. That, you know, a fam families wouldn't put up with it. The only place that they feel like they can get away with being a, a big baby is in church. And pretty soon you hear them whining and sucking on their pacifier, you know, because somebody hurt their feelings, somebody sat in their pew. And listen, it would be funny if it wasn't so sad. And I've seen it so many times. And, you know, ministers catch the brunt of a lot of this stuff. And it's sad because many times stuff that is in people, insecurities in them, things that they didn't get from their mom or dad growing up, and I'm not trying to be funny, things that they didn't get resolved within themselves or whatever, the enemy comes over and starts picking at them, and next thing you know, they're mad at the pastor. And you know why Satan attacks like this? Listen, remember this, and you guys need to remember this and pray for, for me, but pray for pastors and what those that are called to ministry you need to hear me. Satan is not after the usher, and he's not after, you know, the different people that are just serving in the church. Satan wants to take out the headship. And let me tell you why. The Bible says that you strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. That's the pattern. And you know as well as I do, if you cut the head off something, it'll die every time. And so when Satan comes, he's after the headship. He's not after just anybody. He's after the pastor. He's after the apostolic person. He's after the, the leader, whoever it is. And when he comes, he tries to come as the accuser and start accusing the pastor, accusing them to other people's minds, and they're getting upset and offended about nothing. And he'll play on these insecurities and these things within people that they haven't dealt with. That they, And many times what people are trying to do is they're trying to get out of a pastor or a leader what only Jesus can do in them anyway. And whenever, they, whenever the pastor cannot give that to them, then they get offended. I know, I know a friend of mine... And uh, some of you guys might 
might know who this is, but I'm not going to say who it is, but I know a friend of mine that went through a major attack of the devil, and some of it involved his health, but one of his associates was talking to me and was telling me that, you know, he had been through so much, and he was, I mean, it was serious, it was serious, honestly, it was very serious what he'd been going through, but he, he had found himself as a pastor being kind of short with some people and a little bit rude. And the associate loves his pastor so much and knew what he was going through. And he was telling me about this, so I'd be praying for him. But I was thinking to myself, you know, yes, I will be praying, but I know how people are. Pe people want to be able to come to church and, and vomit over everybody and just act crazy and then go through and go, I'm sorry, and be forgiven. But when, a, when somebody like a pastor does it, and I thought, man, I felt sorry for him because I know many times there's very little grace extended. You know, it's like one strike, you're out, buddy, type thing. You know? And so I, I really have been praying for him because I'm concerned for him because many times it's like people want grace, but they don't want to extend it. You know, they want to be forgiven, but they don't want to take, you know, give somebody some slack. You've been going through it, you know, and so you're a little short. It's just blow it off, you know. All right. But this, listen, the church unfortunately, is a major battlefield for the enemy. And if it's a church that's going to go after winning the lost, if it's a church that's going to go after God's presence, if it's a church that is going to have revival, if it's a church that's not going to shy back from preaching the word, if it's a church that's going to expose the enemy and destroy his works, these are things that the enemy will attack, okay? It's just like if you go out in the middle of the night and you set up a light, it's not going to be long until all the bugs are drawn to the light. I'm telling you, when a church is really going after God's presence, revival, soul winning, and book of Acts, it's like a big light in the field and all the bugs start getting attracted. All right. So the way you overcome the accuser of the brethren is by renewing your mind to the word of God and by not entertaining critical, judgmental thoughts toward other people. That was amen right there. Don't entertain critical thoughts, judgmental thoughts about other people. There's many, many times, especially if spiritual warfare is going on, you're perceiving things that are probably very different than the way they actually are anyway. And so something that's a one is perceived as a ten. But that's not the way it's intended. And you've got to just blow some things off and just let some things run off. You just ignore some things. And don't let the enemy start accusing your brother or sister to your mind and entertain it and start getting offended with them. It's just going to cause problems. If you feel something's going on, go talk to them and try to work it out. That's, that's the quickest way right there to kill that. So if you're going to put your faith in a place, you've got to put your faith in the cross. You can't put your faith on a person, a preacher, a church, no matter what. You can't put your faith on them. You've got Jesus said, have faith in God. Okay. So you've got to have faith in God, but what, what faith, 
the way faith works is this. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. But what happened at the cross is the victory for me and you. You understand that? That is the victory. That's the source of victory. And so I'm going to show you the seven places Jesus shed his blood. And where Jesus shed his blood is where you and I can have victory. So we overcome temptation, no idols, we pray, we, we, um, we die to the flesh every day. We overcome deception by getting to know the Holy Spirit and knowing the Bible for ourselves. We overcome the accuser because we're not going to listen to the enemy lying about God to our minds. And we're not going to be judgmental and critical about other people. We're not going to entertain those thoughts. But this right here is where the victory is enforced. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty-two forty-four, the Bible said that he was in the garden and he was so stressed. I don't think any of us will really understand. You know, we go through something in life sometimes and you feel the pressure, you feel the weight of it, and it seems to press down and squeeze your life. But I don't think any of us can even begin to imagine that literally the weight of the world, all the sins that the world that's ever been committed on planet Earth. I mean, just the weight of, of somebody's own sin. Many times when somebody comes to Jesus, this is what they say, I feel like a weight came off me. That's the weight of their sin. Imagine billions of people, the weight of all their sin at once coming on somebody. Just giving you an idea of what he was going through. And so here Jesus is. Basically, Adam and Eve were in a perfect garden without sin. And Satan had no real power. He was just a smart, intelligent being, but he was not powerful. And they basically said this. I'm paraphrasing. paraphrasing. They said, God, not your will, but my will be done. And they ate the fruit. Jesus was in a sinful, wicked world in a garden of Gethsemane. He was in a garden in a very imperfect environment. And Jesus, with the weight of the world on him, said, and he was sweating blood, he said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Are you seeing this? Jesus did the opposite of what Adam and Eve did. They rebelled, Jesus submitted. They said, no, not your will, God, ours. And Jesus said, no, not my will, yours. And that was the first place that he shed his blood. So let me tell you, the first place of victory is that rebellious streak is broken right there. Jesus paid for us to be able to obey God, to be able to die to our sin and live right. That's why in 1 Peter 2.24, it says that he born his body our sin, that we could die to it. So that's the first thing right there is that that rebellious streak against God is broken by the blood of Jesus. The second place Jesus shed his blood was at the whipping post. And Jesus took it. He took the 39 lashes on his back, and they, they plowed him open. The Bible says he was plowed open and that he was unrecognizable. And so he allowed himself to be plowed open, and by his stripes, the Bible says, you were healed. So he paid for your healing 
your physical healing at the whipping post. When they cut his back open with the cat of nine tails, it ripped open. When they did that and blood came out, that paid for your healing. So now 1 Peter 2.24 is making a little bit more sense when you understand. He, 1 Peter 2.24 says this, He bore in his body our sin that we can die to it, and by his stripes you were healed. You see what I'm saying? The next place Jesus shed his blood, and I'm going to build on this next week, is on the brow where they took a, and made a crown of thorns and jammed it down on his head so that blood came out of his forehead and the sides of his head. He was bleeding out from the crowns that went into his head. Now, interesting that Adam, when Adam sinned, of course, he blamed his wife, you know. Anyway, I won't go there. <laughs> he blamed her. It didn't work. God's not going to buy that. Listen, learn right there. Learn right there. God never lets you do that. Okay, blame somebody else. It's not going to work. Yeah. So anyway, whenever Adam sinned, listen to what God told Adam. God told Adam, basically I'm paraphrasing, okay, but God said this. You've been in a perfect garden. You've been able to walk through here. Everything's been perfect, but now... Because you've sinned, you are going to only eat by the sweat of your brow. Where things came easy before, now things are going to be hard. And it was through a lot of labor and toiling. Now, what is that? That's poverty. That's lack. That's struggling. There's, there's people in life, I've seen them many, many times, where they have to work two and three jobs just to make ends meet, you know, and they struggle paycheck to paycheck. Jesus paid that the power of poverty and lack right there would be broken because where God put a curse on man that said by the sweat of your brow you'll eat it'll be difficult Jesus by the sweat of his brow he bled and he broke the curse of poverty amen and I'll build on that next week but we can live above that and another thing Jesus they ripped his beard out and he obviously bled that way so that the glory of God can shine upon your face again. You know, I can tell when somebody comes down and they've been a ranked sinner, and then you, they get saved and you come back and you see them later, their countenance is different, you know. And if you, if you have any discernment at all, you can see it. You know what that is? Jesus allowed his beard to be ripped out and he bled, and it, there's something about the glory arising and shining upon our countenance. You know, when you look at an animal, as goofy as they are, they may have somewhat expressions on their face. I'm not saying they don't, okay? But only a man and a woman, we're the only ones that have a countenance. A countenance is right here. And you can tell when somebody's countenance is full of joy and when it's full of depression. All right, the next place Jesus shed his blood they took him down the, the road, the Via Della Rosa, down the place of the road of sorrow, whatever it's called, and they took him up there and placed him on the cross, and they drove spikes into his hands. When spikes went into his hands, he bled out of his hands. And the Bible says in Mark sixteen eighteen that we will lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. I don't think people really have any idea, I don't want to get into it, of, of what God originally invested in Adam when he made him. 
I mean, he had authority over the universe as we know it, over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air. He was brilliant. God, you know, he didn't have to go to school to learn. He knew it was in there from God. He knew all about biology. He knew all about zoology. He was brilliant. And there was so much authority and power invested in him. And we're just now, through Jesus Christ, beginning to move into, you know what the Bible calls the gifts of the Spirit in the book of Hebrews? It calls them the powers of the age to come. And so as we're beginning to get filled with the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, and flow in the gifts and begin to, to operate in the power of God, we're tapping into the powers of the age to come. That's what the Bible calls it. I know it sounds mystical, but that really is what the Bible calls it. Because when, when we see Jesus face to face and we're in heaven, then all those things are going to be commonplace. It's the powers of the age to come. But right now, as we're operating in the supernatural, we're just beginning to gain back what was lost in the garden. You see what I'm saying? But Jesus paid for our hands to be full of power and authority, to destroy the devil's works. The next place, the fifth place that Jesus shed his blood was from his feet. And the Bible says in Luke 10, 19, that we'll trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Everywhere that Abraham's feet, everywhere that he treaded, everywhere he walked, God gave him. And God said the same thing to Joshua. I'll give you everywhere the soles of your feet tread. And I heard one time David Hogan say when he would go to a village to preach the gospel, he would go there looking for somebody many times. And he said he would end up going to every hut, every place in the whole village, and he would find the person at the last place. And he said he finally realized that God was actually setting him up because everywhere the soles of his feet tread, God would give him. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot more authority in our hands and feet than we, what we realize. The sixth place Jesus shed his blood was out of his side. When God took Adam and put him to sleep and took out a rib to create Eve, that's basically what Jesus did when he was pierced in the side. He was, you remember whenever they pierced him in the side and blood and water came out? He was creating through that a bride for himself. And also, when a child is born, what do you see in the delivery room? Blood and water. Jesus was purchasing children for the kingdom of God, to be born into the kingdom. You know how Jesus died? He actually physically died from a broken heart. A lot of people don't know that. That's why blood and water came out of his side, because his heart burst. So Jesus actually died from a broken heart. He allowed it. He surrendered to it. But the blood and the water, spiritually speaking, is what washes us clean. It makes us children of God. It makes us the bride of Christ. And the last thing to mention is the bruising. The Bible says he was pierced for our transgressions, but he was bruised for our iniquity. The bruising on the inside. Well, there's a difference between sin. We all make mistakes, and you guys need to learn this about sin, transgression, and iniquity. You need to memorize this because it's important. It'll help a lot of people. You see, sin means missing the mark. That means you're trying to do good, and then, you know, you make a mistake throughout your life. 
And the Bible says in 1 John that if we say that we're without sin, we're just deceiving ourselves. So all of us struggle in different areas. Even though we're doing our best to live for Jesus, we're imperfect, but he's going to help us overcome. Amen? But transgression means rebellion against God. And Jesus was pierced for your transgression. So Eve was deceived, and so she sinned because she was tricked. But Adam transgressed against God. He rebelled against God because he knew what he was doing. Do you see the difference? Adam knew that it was wrong, but he did it anyway. Eve was tricked into it. So she sinned, but he transgressed. Now, iniquity is altogether different. Sin means missing the mark. Transgression means to rebel. There's a difference between you had a bad day, you got upset, maybe you said something you regret, that's a sin. But transgression is somebody that sits back and premeditates and goes, I know that's wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's a transgression. That's rebelling against God. Iniquity is totally different. Iniquity means bent or crooked or perverse. And it is something when somebody has sinned over and over and over in their life and it's become habitual in their life, there's something that can be bent and crooked within them to where now it controls them. There's something in them that drives them toward that sin. Also, iniquity is generational. Please hear me. That's a big thing right there. It's generational. It, I don't fully understand it, but it has something to do with DNA. And it travels down family bloodlines. You get blue eyes. You get a certain color hair. You get a certain frame because of your DNA. But I'm telling you, there are spiritual things that attach and travel down family lines. It can be a generational blessing. You want to call it a generational curse. Whatever, it, there's something that goes down family lines. It's DNA related. And so somebody, they've inherited this iniquity in them, and from a young age they find themselves driven towards certain sins of their ancestors because their, their ancestors allowed it in their life and it became an iniquity in them. That iniquity travels down lines. That's why God said, don't worship any other gods. If you do, I will visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Iniquity. He didn't say he would visit the sin. He would visit the iniquity. But here's the good news. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquity. Bruise is where you bleed on the inside. Jesus bled on the inside so that that iniquity that's in you can be pulled out. And where you used to have drives towards certain sins, it seemed like it controlled you. It was frustrating. You wanted to live above it, but it was like you were trying to shoot an arrow at a target, but the arrow was crooked. There was something within you crooked, and you would try, and you would, every time you seemed to miss the mark. But whenever you understand that Jesus was bruised for your iniquity, and you put your faith in the cross, what is crooked within all of a sudden is cleaned out, and now you can live it. reason why people don't know this is because it's not preached. But if people will preach the cross in its entirety and really preach, you've got to understand faith comes by hearing the word. When people hear that, right there what I just preached, they hear that, faith comes up in them that this thing that has been driving me, I can really be free. 
Jesus was bruised for that. His blood was shed for me for this. Not just for my sin to be forgiven, but that the power of sin is broken off my life and I can live in victory. If you're going to put your faith in something, put your faith in the cross. Put your faith in the cross. Put your faith in what Jesus did for you. That is where healing is. That's where deliverance is. That's where freedom is found, is in the cross. You know, and I, and I grieve because many people don't want to preach the blood anymore. It's too gory. Listen, friend, the blood is all through the Bible. There was a blood that pointed to the blood of Christ in the Old Testament where the, the blood of bulls and goats would be shed. When you read all the way through to the book of Revelation, you see the Son of God with robes dipped in blood. Listen, God has never been shy about talking about the blood. Even when Adam and Eve sinned, it said that God clothed them in skins. God shed blood. He put the animal skins on them and basically preached the gospel to them. But don't be ashamed of the blood because it is the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. Do you understand that the blood of Jesus is like a spiritual soap that washes all the filth off you and out of your life and makes you clean before God? There's nothing else that can do that but the blood. When you preach the blood, that is what has the power to destroy demons and their works, is the blood. The blood is what also releases power to bring healing and freedom to people. Because many times people are in bondage uh, to health problems because of the things in their life that's sinful. And so whenever they get that washed out of their life and they get free from their sin, healing comes. I want to close with this, talking about the power of the blood. Galatians 3.13 says the blessings given to Abraham are ours now. When Jesus died on the cross, he hung on the cross for six hours. I don't think any of us understand how long that is when you're in pain. I had a very small, just little bitty taste of that one time because we had a, a drama we were doing where they did this living cross where you had to hang up there for a while. And I had to be up there for like 30 minutes or something. I thought, man, you know, and I was in no pain or anything, but it was just miserable hanging up there for like 30 minutes. Can you imagine being having your back all ripped open, being beaten to the degree you're unrecognizable, totally in pain, and being willing to hang up there for six hours? But when Jesus hung up there for six hours, six is the number of sinful man. He was paying for our freedom. And listen, the blessings given to Abraham come on us. You know what the blessings given to Abraham are? I want you to listen to these words. It's exaltation and promotion. That's where God said you'll be the head, not the tail. Did you know whenever you start moving in the blessings given to Abraham, you're going to be the person that finds promotion? Are you hearing me? You're the one that's going to be exalted. It has to do with health. It has to do with long life. It has to do with reproductiveness. It has to do with prosperity and abundance. God wants us to prosper and do well. It has to do with favor with God and man. Favor is an awesome thing. And it also has to do with victory. This, one of my favorite people in the Bible is Abraham, and one of my favorite stories of Abraham was there were three kings that came with their armies and took Lot out of Sodom. Now, if they had just pillaged Sodom, that would have been one thing, but they made the mistake 
have taken Abraham's nephew hostage. Or captive, I should say. And they had him, and Abraham said, we've got to go get him. So listen to this. Abraham, God had made Abraham so powerful in his family that him and just his family members went in and whipped three kings and their armies and took Lot back out. Now that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about supernatural victory. When I read to you these list, this list of blessings, that supernatural victory, and you can basically find that Deuteronomy 28 when you read it and put it in context, these are the different blessings like a category. And then I want to close with this, the power of the Lord's Supper and speaking blessings. I don't think we really understand how powerful the Lord's Supper really is. What represents Jesus' body and his blood going into us. You know, Jesus actually instituted this himself while he was here on the earth. He took the bread and the wine and he instituted this himself. I want you to think about this. The Bible says, I'll give you some quick things about communion because I want you to have faith in what Jesus did for you on the cross. I want you to have faith about taking the Lord's Supper. In Leviticus 6.18, the priest back in the Old Testament time would cut up an animal. They would shed the blood for the sin of the family, cut the animal in five pieces, put it on the bronze altar, and burn it. And then the priests would eat from that because it was a lamb or some animal that basically got cooked, and they would eat from that. But listen to what it said. It said in Leviticus 6.18, when the priest ate of the sacrifice, they became so holy that even what they touched became holy. Now, if the blood of a bull or a goat or a lamb could make a priest so holy even what they touched, well, how much more so the blood of Jesus? Do you see what I'm saying? That was just a shadow of what was to come. When we take the Lord's Supper, I don't think people realize the level deep consecration that's happening in them and let me say this about the lord's supper revelation talks about um it says because you have forsaken your first love i will remove your lampstand please hear this this is so important people in churches don't realize that that actually in revelation when you read the greek i know i've preached on this it says it's actually translated supreme love feast and it has to do with communion. It says you've forsaken your first love, but what it means is supreme love feast. So in other words, Jesus was rebuking that church saying, you have quit taking communion. And because you've quit taking the Lord's Supper, he said, I'm going to remove your lampstand. You know what the lampstand represents in the tabernacle? It represented the anointing and it represented revelation. When people start neglecting communion, they're going to start losing some of the anointing and losing the flow of revelation that they could have if they would be taking it. And you know why that's there? Because of the things I've got right here. Because there's a deep consecration. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the yeast is purged out. Yeast represents sin. I have seen as people on a consistent basis would be taking the Lord's Supper with us. I have seen the Lord sanctify their life. The yeast is being purged out. They're being cleaned up. And I've also seen the Lord purge out a few people that needed to go out of the church. He will purge the yeast out. Some pastors need to hear that. 
because, you know, their church, there's, there's some things. And listen, if you'll take the Lord's Supper on a regular basis with your church, the Lord will cleanse the yeast out. Also, Exodus 12, Job 1, 9, the children of Israel put the blood on the doorpost of their homes. Remember when Moses was leading the children of Israel out? On the last day, they had to take that blood. They took grass. It was called hyssop. They took it, and they painted it like a paintbrush. They painted the blood on the doorpost of their home. And when the death angel came, it had to pass over. Now listen, Job, whenever God had allowed Satan to attack Job, whenever Satan and his, some of his demons appeared to God, God said, have you considered Job? And, Job, and uh, Satan said to God, Job has a hedge of protection around him and his family and all he owns. You know why he had a hedge? Because every morning Job would get up and shed blood. He would sacrifice an animal for the sin of his family. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The blood forms a protection around your life. We need the blood over our life every day. The Bible calls, when you take communion, it calls it in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing. You're drinking a blessing on yourself. Also, 1 Peter 2.24, I keep quoting, by his stripes you were healed. There are many people that are healed while taking the Lord's Supper. There are also many people that are delivered of things while taking the Lord's Supper. There's deep intimacy and revelation that comes. John 6.44 and Luke 24.30 talks about, you remember the road to Emmaus? When it said, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked with us? But Jesus broke bread with them. He sat down with them and broke bread. And when he did, their eyes were open and they saw him. And they said that was Jesus. And then he disappeared. But whenever Jesus breaks bread with you, that's the Lord's Supper, there's revelation. Also, strength for the battle. David's mighty men, they ate the, the consecrated bread out of the tabernacle. And it gave them strength for the battle. When you take the Lord's Supper, it gives you strength for the battle. And the last thing is, is the glory. We want the glory in our lives, but the glory comes where the blood is. You want the glory in your home, put the blood over your home. You want the glory in your life, get under the blood of Jesus. And one of the most powerful ways to come under the blood is through taking the Lord's Supper. And the last thing is, I'm going to make this quick, is speaking blessings. You want change in your life, quit speaking negative and start speaking positive. The power of life and death is in your mouth. And listen, it says, 1 Peter 3, 9, Don't repay evil for evil or insult with insult, but on the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called to inherit a blessing. When you start going around and speaking blessings over your family, your finances, your health, your life, and you keep speaking blessings, you're going to inherit a blessing. You're speaking blessings, and it causes things to go in your favor. We've got to stop being negative and stop speaking things that you don't want to happen. Stop speaking things out of fear and stop speaking things out of grumbling or complaining or being negative. You have no idea. Listen, if you're doing that, you really have no idea what you're doing. It's cursing yourself. But start speaking blessings and watch as God starts turning things. You know, sometimes I believe people, there are people that live lives that are so frustrated. They live frustrated. And some of the reason why I believe that they live frustrated is because of their own mouth. We have what we say. If we start speaking life and blessings and thanksgiving, 
You know, I believe with all my heart there's going to be people that will we'll meet them in heaven, they're saved, but they live their whole life in a spiritual wilderness going in circles. They went from one job, one place, one location, whatever, negative and complaining and whining. Round and round we go. And, the, and God never released them into a promised land. They never saw answered prayers. And it has a lot to do with what you say. Are you hearing me? So what I want to close with is this. Jesus paid for us to walk in victory. We know that. But we've got to understand the power of the cross and how to overcome. We overcome temptation by getting the idols out and dying to the flesh. You die to the flesh by getting in prayer every day. We overcome being deceived because we know the Bible for ourselves. We're not going to be like Eve that misquotes things. We're going to know the word. See, Satan knew the word better than Eve did. And let me tell you something. Satan knows the word better than a lot of you think he does. and knows it probably better than you and me. But we better get in here and learn it for ourselves. Because the enemy, if he knows the word better than you and comes to you, he can mess with your head. And he can use some of these people that are his puppets to sit there and argue with you and put their little spin on it. I've seen him do it. And thankfully, I'm not claiming to know everything by any means, but thankfully I know it enough that whenever somebody starts misquoting things to me on the streets, I'm like, no, that's not what it says. And you need to know that, friend. Listen to me. And you need to know you're not going to be deceived if you know the Holy Spirit. You need to know him for yourself. And you're not going to give in to the accuser of the brethren because when Satan starts lying to your head about God, you're not going to listen to it. Amen. And you're not going to listen to the lies of the enemy against your brothers and sisters. Listen, if something is trying to push negative thoughts into your mind about your brother and sister, you can pretty much tell right then that that's not God because that is not the way God thinks of them. When God thinks when God thinks of his people, he thinks loving thoughts over them. The Bible says he does. He says, I know the plans I have for you, the plans to prosper, give you hope in the future. When God sees his children, he's thinking good thoughts over them. So if you're getting negative thoughts about your brother and sister, you're not getting that from the Holy Ghost. It's either your flesh or it's the enemy, but it's not coming from God. Now, God may show you something to pray about, but it'll be in love. It won't be critical. And we understand the power of the cross, and we're going to start walking in the power of the cross. Amen? Listen, I believe with all my heart that right now, because I preach this, people are going to start getting breakthroughs in the area of where you used to struggle with sin. You're going to start saying, God, not my will, but your will be done. The power of that thing's being broken. Healing. The power of poverty being broken and moving into blessings. Power in our hands and our feet. I'm going to pray with people who want prayer, but let me tell you, I don't think we really truly have any idea how much power is truly available to us in our hands that are living the life. If we have clean hands before God, our hands can flow the power of God. Do you understand that when the Bible says the Spirit of God lives within you, do you really understand that God Almighty lives in you and that God Almighty will change you? He's not going to let stuff keep going on in your life. Okay, He's going to deal with it. But He's but God Almighty is within you, and he'll flow through the laying on of hands.
So, Lord, whichever way you want to take this, I thank you for this service tonight. I thank you for freedom. I thank you for breakthrough. I'm going to just flow with the Holy Spirit. We can actually go ahead and get off some of these recordings and just kind of be able to worship the Lord together right now, okay? Why don't you close your eyes with me?